Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website. That's sumatisparks.com. Sumati is S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks are flying. (laughs) And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, so you'll be the first to learn about my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Joe Hawkins. Joe is the CEO and co-founder of the Oakland LGBTQ Center. Uh, Joe co-founded the center with Jeff Myers, and Joe also co-founded Oakland, the Oakland Pride Celebration. And I just want to say that um, I was really happy to find on the website about the center that the Oakland LGBTQ Community Center is one of the very few all-inclusive LGBTQ community centers in the nation led and founded by African Americans and the first in the state of California. So welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. It's great to be here. So glad to have you. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, Joe, I want to hear a little bit about your story. Like, how did you end up in a position to be able to lead such a, a big effort as, you know, forming this community center and, you know, creating the Pride Celebration? What, what was your background and how did you get here? Well, um, I would love to say that I studied to be able to do this for years, but that is not how it happened. I uh, actually, as a out gay person, I was never um, interested in activism or doing any kind of LGBTQ work when I was young. Um, however, when I uh, it what really pushed me into this work was uh, I was in a situation where my son was uh, possibly going to be taken away from me. Um, my uh, son's mother uh, and I were high school sweethearts, and uh, I came out actually to her, and she <laughs> I remember her saying, you know, um, I should have known that you were gay because I met you in typing class and you were the fastest typist there. And I just, <laughs> I had, a, I had a feeling, but, uh, we literally became friends, very good friends after I came out, uh, even closer than when we were together. And, um, I was in the military, uh, for 10 years. And after I got out of the military, I, uh, came, to Oakland, and I decided, uh, came to the Oakland Army base, and I decided that that would be where I would live. So I left my home state of Michigan and moved to Oakland, and she and I had joint custody of my son. Um, It was then that um, things shifted dramatically for my son and I, because we received news that she had be, been killed in a fire. And Ooh. when I, when I um, 
got the news, I I remember throwing the phone across the room because I just thought, why is it that I have to tell this to my son? It, it was yeah. it just it blew me away. So I, I remember taking my son to Lake Merritt here in Oakland and telling him. And if you ever have to tell a child that their mother is gone, anyone who has lost a parent, um, I literally got to see the light go out in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And w- when we decide, when we uh, you know, started packing up because we had to go, obviously, to the funeral in Michigan. When we got there, um, nothing seemed normal, of course, but things got very, um, they got very tense. Uh, my son's, her, my son's mother, her family, literally started trying to take my son from my arms and Ooh. it was a really negative experience it was very uh, doubly tra- traumatic for my son he just lost his mother and then he was having people saying to him that that he would not uh, that that they don't want him to be raised by a, a faggot or a gay man and oh my god what year was this it, show this was like 1990. It was around wow. that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, when we made it back, there there was a, a lot going on to to try to take my son from me, but I uh, was I was able to find a way. Well, someone, a friend of mine said, Joe, you know, if they take your son from you, um, you can at least set up some sort of legal situation where you can see him. But I doubt if you'll have custody because he's, he's, uh, you're gay and you're black and men don't typically get custody of their, their child. And I was like, well, my son's mother has passed and I, I am his biological father, and I am going to keep custody of my son. And mm-hmm. I, no one was feeling like that was going to be a possibility for me as an out gay man. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine said, Joe, you know, whatever you do, and I had, I had like the devil on one side and an angel on the other. And, and, and he, one of my friends said, Joe, I want you to speak to someone, stay by the phone. And I thought it was Johnny Cochran because I had just attended an event downtown Oakland at Jeffrey's Inner Circle where I met Johnny Cochran, and I was talking him with him about legal issues regarding custody for my son. And um, so I just automatically thought it must be must be him. He must have connected with him. But when the phone rang, it was, rang, it was uh, Oprah Winfrey. Wow. And so, so she and on our website. If you go to our my bio on our website, there is a video clip of that time period in the, mm-hmm. from that show, and um, and I just remembered being like numb. I couldn't believe it. And she said, uh, "Joe, we heard about what's happening with you, and we're wondering if your 
mother would go on the show with you. How does your mother feel? I said, well, my mother is very religious and she won't go. She will not be on the show. And uh, she said, well, let me call her. So she called my mom. <laughs> my mom. My mom hangs up on her. She calls me back and says, Joe, she hung up. And I said, well, she said, how about if we call her together and we we can Your we mother can hung up on Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> yeah, she hung up on her. And so we, when we got back, it was like, I, she, I said, Mom, did someone call you? Uh, just she said, yeah, some fool just called here, saying they were Oprah. I said, Mom, that was Oprah, and she was like, yes, this is Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said she asked my mom if she would be on the show, and my mother, being a bit, the religious woman that she is, she said that she needed to check with her pastor and her church, and they agreed. And and when I was on that show, um. No, no one, no of any race, had ever been on a national talk show uh, fighting for their, not a gay person, to fighting for their right to keep their child. Wow. So that, 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 that had not happened at that time. And so, but I just remember everything sort of shifted for me uh, after being on that show and of course, I did get to raise my son. Uh, I, I now have, he's 37 now. I hope, if he's listening, I hope he won't be mad if I'm a year off. Um, but, <laughs> and I have three beautiful grandchildren. Mm. And, uh, but one thing I knew is that not everyone would have an Oprah Winfrey, you know, to help right. their situation or to help, help their case or, and, um, and I, I, it was that, that propelled me into activism, and I became an, an activist not just for LGBTQ rights, but also for, for, the issue of HIV and AIDS, and just the issues of the day that were uh, important to me. So that, that's, that's mm-hmm. how it started. I didn't start because I was proud to be gay. I, pr- I started because I. I wanted my son to know who I was if they took him from me and that there was a record of me fighting for him. Wow, I had no idea. That is so incredible. You are blessed. And have you been able to help other people um, with that sort of thing, with retaining custody of their children where they might normally not have been able to because they were gay and or black? Well, in California, we're very fortunate, right? We... In many ways, we we have so much um, to support us as LGBTQ people. But people call, having created the center, like this is not many people on earth run LGBTQ centers. <laughs> and for those of who, us who do, we know that we get calls from all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. Just when people see our website, they some all the centers I'm sure have this experience, but people call here asking how can we help them on a variety of issues and oftentimes uh it's about um, parenting and I, I I'm in a situation where you know my husband is trying to take my children because I, and that's today that's that's mm-hmm. in in, in two thousand twenty one 
and it, it, it's it's sort of tra- traumatizing. It, it sort of takes you back. But when you hear people in states that are not as LGBTQ friendly, and you you realize that America isn't as all over, isn't as progressive as we would. We all know this, but just on it, it's just really, really. Um, it's just it's a reality check about how bad things are and just us we last year we were we were um vandalized our all of our windows were broken out that's in oakland and it wasn't because yeah. of the protest black lives matter protest we literally had a big banner on our front window that says that said black lgbtq lives matter too and the day that we were to carry a pink torch uh for san francisco pride weekend um, some a, a young person, he was a white male, uh, came to our f- front doors and with a golf club, and he began yelling obscenities that were racist as well as homophobic, and he broke all our windows and he left. Um, you saw him so do this even, or was on video? Uh, all of the people who were at, you know, there are lots of vendors in front of yes. of, of that location. And so right. they saw him. Some of them did get video. And um, and they showed that to the police. The police, uh, he was not ever caught, but they did uh, have it uh, listed as a hate crime. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, that was just last year in Oakland. Wow. So, wow. you know. Yeah, we think we're in a bubble there in the Bay Area, but there really is no bubble because the bubbles get broken with the with the hate, with the hatred. Yeah. So yeah. So whether yeah whether it's you. homophobia, transphobia, or racism, it's here, it's alive, and we we are all dealing with it. But yeah, it's great to be on this thank corner you for, though. Yeah, you're very visible there in that spot. Yeah, that can make you a beacon and a target. Right. But, you know, speaking of California, I just heard today that they were something about banning travel, like government-paid travel to the states that have repressive trans laws. Did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah, I did read that. And, you know, I, that's great, <laughs> you know. So yeah, so California um, is. There's a is lot of trying, places trying that have repressive trans. I mean, yeah, they named like a lot of states, like they're really going for it right now. And the, like the trans issue, I mean, it was it was the gay marriage issue, I don't know, ten, twelve years ago, and now they're going after the trans issue just as a way to, you know, rile up their base to try to win elections, and it just always seems like the LGBTQ community is always at the, you know, the brunt of the hatred. So thank you for what yeah. you're offering and, and like a safe haven for people to feel seen. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what the center provides. Like what are some of the most important services that you provide there? Well, can, can I tell you a little bit about how the center started? Absolutely. So the center, we're only three and a half 
years open, and um, we there were there was a, a huge spike in hate crimes during the elections, uh, and and that was in Alameda County here in Oakland, and um, and we my co-founder and I uh, were we saw this these reports about hate crimes. The top two targets at that time were uh, LGBTQ people and black people. And mm-hmm. we just felt we, we couldn't wait anymore. Everyone was saying feasibility studies need to happen. And we just, Oakland was the only major city in the state that did not have an LGBTQ center at that time. So we mm-hmm. just, we, we did it. And we rented one room and a, a one office and a co-working space above you know, you see it right there on the corner of Lakeshore and Lakeside. And um, we were just happy to have an office space, and we had a grand opening for the office, and everyone thought the whole building was ours. <laughs> but it was mm-hmm. just that one office. And so, but three months later, we learned that the operator of the co-working space was being evicted. So we talked with the owner, and the owner said, uh, he called us and said, I'm the owner of 3207 Lakeshore, he said, um, Joe, what happens when people don't pay their rent? <laughs> so I said, so she's being evicted. And he said, yes. And he said, are you renting from her? I said, yes, we are. He said, then you will be evicted too. Hmm. And we said, we don't want to be evicted. <laughs> and he he said, he said, uh, well, he checked. He said, let me get some information from you. He checked us out, and he said, you know, you have first right of refusal. He said, it's going to take me a couple of months to evict her, and it did, and she made our lives a little hell with, with our Thanksgiving that we had here for the community, our Christmas. But finally, the courts would not evict her through the holidays. They evicted her after the holidays, and we took over. January 1st, 2018, and began feverishly uh, because our rent rent went from five, you know, hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars. And we took over a much larger part of the space. Oh, yeah. Right now we've we even expanded further, uh, which I'm going to go into. But... um, but, yeah, so we took it over and we rented the space to queer therapists as well as mm. small queer nonprofits, and that helped us for a while till the pandemic hit and those therapists mm-hmm. no longer needed space. Um, mm-hmm. So, But at the same time, we wrote a major grant to help reduce the rates of HIV in the black and Latino community. For those who don't know, uh, it is estimated that one in two black gay men and trans individuals will be, will be infected with HIV in their lifetime and one mm. in four Latino. So wow. we, this has been something I've worked on for decades and we competed for a statewide grant, which was a multimillion dollar grant. And we got that grant to, to, to work on, reducing the rates of HIV among those populations. And we expanded and opened a clinic. So there was more space available that people don't even 
you know, you c couldn't tell if unless you were up here. And so we opened a clinic called the Glenn Burke Wellness Clinic. Uh, Glenn Burke was an Oakland native. He was America's first out gay major league baseball player. And he mm. went through hell back in the 70s. And he played for the mm -hmm. Los Angeles Dodgers, refused to go in. They even paid, offered to pay him $75,000 in 1970s and uh, 75 to marry a woman, which he refused, and summarily he then dated Tommy Lasorda's son, who was gay, and they oh, really? booted him out of the yeah. They booted him out of the Dodgers, and then he was the Oakland A's picked him back up, and they just couldn't deal with his unapologetically gay uh, behavior and. He was just being himself. He's African-American, and he's also credited with creating the high five that you see in sports today. Um, uh -huh. But he died. He died of AIDS in the, in the 90s. And we, we created a clinic here that we believe would have served him well. Mm -hmm. But so that in addition to the clinic. I'm so glad you yeah. memorialized him because I'd never heard of him. Like the of course, yeah, of course the black person up. invented the high five. That totally makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a gay one at that. So uh, Exactly, right, because of the, your elbows above the waist, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. But there are, there, there's a documentary about him that you can see on YouTube, actually. Um, but, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis actually has the rights to his life story. So hopefully she'll Ooh. do something with it. Cool. But since we've opened, though, uh, we have we're offering we have a youth services program. We got a grant from the city to provide services to youth. So many youth, uh, over forty percent of youth uh, identify as homeless youth identify as LGBTQ. Um, we've been serving those youth since the pandemic hit. Many parents mm -hmm. who do not did not like their children being LGBTQ, we've been dealing with them, helping them because they were put out of their homes. Um, we, uh, we, we've been offering emergency rental assistance to people um, during the pandemic, helping to keep them in their homes. Um, in shared living situations, people don't realize how many housing, shared housing situations don't want trans people or mm. queer people or black people who are trans and queer, <laughs> you know, you know, so right. we, so many of those people end up living on the streets or in their cars, but we've been able to help them to get into housing. So no matter what anyone ever tells you about Oakland, the queer community supports the queer community here because we mm -hmm. know for a fact, Hundreds of thousands of dollars have been given to our housing program to make sure that people don't have to be on the streets. Um, so, and then um, we also do food. We have a food program here to help people to get food. Uh, so we have a lot of services that grew in just the past year and a half. So we went from three staff. Wow, I think we have 20 staff now, but it's amazing. Wow. 
That's great. You know, it's interesting what you say about the housing because I had a, you know, shared housing situation in Oakland for many years. You know, I always had two or three roommates. And um, when I put, you know, LGBTQ and POC welcome to apply, I was amazed at, like, the queer people and trans people that, like, came out of the woodwork. I was like, wow. And I have, have had such a fantastic community, like the best roommates ever, um, you know, and it was only because my consciousness was raised about it that I started putting it on the ad. I hadn't known before that, that there was such a limitation for for that community to be able to, you know, find housing. So true. And, you know, when we opened our doors, trans people were the first to show up here. Our logo is mm-hmm. designed by a transgender person. Like it, you mm-hmm. can, and, and at the same time, there was a lot of rhetoric politically about that was anti-trans happening. So it was very clear that this center became a safe place for them. So and it, it was mm-hmm. pretty obvious in so many ways. So it still is. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's so much that you do. Um, Tell me, well, before we continue, I just want to let people know who are just joining the show that you're, um, this is Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Joe Hawkins, the CEO and co-founder of the Oakland LGBTQ Center, which is the only major, the only LGBTQ center in a major city that founded and run by African-Americans. So a really special um, community center that's doing so much for people that really need support. So if you have any questions for Joe and want to talk about anything that that we're talking about, feel free to call in. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. And don't worry about interrupting us. You'll just be put on hold and we'll get to your call at the right time. Again, the number is 657-383-1132. So, Joe, tell me a little bit more about what effect your, your center being there has had on the Oakland community as a whole and specifically the African American community in Oakland as a whole. Uh, well, we, because the center serves everyone, regardless of your ethnicity, um, I think that in terms of just uh, black queer people seeing uh, African Americans in the leadership role, especially since we're found, we founded the center, uh, that definitely has had an impact because just just the sheer number of um, parents who bring their children here who are African-American who feel safer because they see black LGBTQ leadership here um, in the way that we engage with the community is from a perspective of um, people of color, uh, which is very different than what you see at other LGBTQ centers. I do think I'm very supportive of all of the LGBTQ centers. However, it is different when you have white leadership um, where it is. is When you found something like a center, 
and you are African American. I remember we had a, some people come here, some white people in the beginning, and they asked us, we were at the front desk, and they asked us, we, could we, um, uh, can we speak to the people who are running this? And when we said, oh, that's us, we're, we're running. They said, no, the people who, who are over you. <laughs> oh, my God. And we're like, we said, no, there's no one over us. <laughs> and it's just very, it's very interesting how, what people perceive. If most, if you go to most centers, they are, it's run by white queer people. And so mm-hmm. you, so when they, a person, it was just, very, it's just very interesting the things that we, we've, we've uh, experienced. But um, it definitely has an impact throughout, especially the the African American LGBTQ community, because they get to see um, people who are um, calling the shots uh, at mm-hmm. at a place that is for for LGBTQ people, and that's not that hasn't been the norm. Yeah. And I think, you know, white folks really don't know how important, it, you know, those of us that, you know, try to unlearn our racism and are, you know, doing the best we can to be anti-racism, we don't always really understand how important it is for people of color to see other people who look like them. Um, they think mm-hmm. like, oh, we're friendly, you know, we're not going to hurt you. But the relief <laughs> that, that I've noticed that people of color have when they find, and so when I've, I, you know, I put on events for my business over the years, and I've been coached by black and brown people to put black and brown people in leadership of the event rather than I'm at the top and I have my sidekick. You know, like this is what we've been presented in our culture. Like there's the black friend in all the movies, you know. <laughs> there's like mm-hmm. the lower level. Yeah, so I've gone out of my way to like collaborate people of color and like share, you know, leadership with them. And then it makes it so much more welcoming for diverse people to come and join the event when they see a person of color in leadership. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And I do think um, that, you know, because we're an all inclusive center, we're not a black center. And actually in the beginning, when there was a, there were, we had some sort of people who were harassing us who were queer, and so they would uh, post on our Facebook page or all the time they would say, congratulations on your black queer center. Now, we could have very well have done that, but we also knew that Oakland needed a center that was for everyone. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, but we did get taunts from people who I who were racist queer people, which is another thing wow. that people don't talk about is the fact that some someone I was in an interview recently and people were surprised to hear me say that we dealt with racism at from other from white queer people, and I just I I, I couldn't I'm like. Why would you not understand that that is the case? You know, mm-hmm. just because a person becomes uh, comes out as an LGBTQ person, that doesn't mean that they haven't been indoctrinated into this racist institution or, or raised, right. whoever raised them, 
didn't raise them in a way that's very racist. So, um, but but I remember back in the '90s here in in the Bay Area, you would go to a club in the city, San Francisco, and have to show multiple pieces of ID as a black person just to get in. Mm. So, um, wow. those things are remnants of uh, that. Of, of of a long history of racism here in the in in the queer community here and uh, but but you know I do believe that things are changing. Mm-hmm. Well, you know it's the other way around too because you posted something on your Facebook page during the Black Lives Matter protests after the George Floyd murder about straight black men committing violence against trans black women. And Mm -hmm. it was brave of you to post that because there was such a movement at that time around awareness of black lives mattering. But then for, for you to also point out during that time that the homophobia within the black community, I thought that was really brave for you to bring that up at that time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a fact. But when you look at um, who's murdering who, uh, it's very, it's not un- a- abnormal for black people to kill black people. Most people who kill white people are white people. Okay, right. it's like a crime of convenience. So the, the right. people who are right. close, Whoever you're close around, to them. Yeah. So. We definitely have uh, white trans people who are killed by white white men mm-hmm. who 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 yes. may screen the sort of trans defense similar to the gay defense. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but I but we definitely see just like we see a lot of crime, black on black crime. Uh, that's quote unquote black on black crime but that is very prevalent in low income communities and there are definitely um, lots of black men who cannot deal with the fact that they also they may be pansexual and they are seeing a black trans woman and they have a panic defense or a panic attack that when they uh, and they will they have killed them and black black yeah. trans women have been killed at the highest rates uh, similar to what we see with uh, black men. Right, that's what I've heard that um, that black trans violence is the 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 highest as that population gets the true. most violence perpetrated against them. Very true. And so ha- have you been able to help people in that community at your center? Yeah, in many ways, because we hire, we have, I, I would say about 40% of our uh, employees are trans women uh, to our black trans women. Um, and they, we're 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 launching an amazing effort to uh, provide support to the trans community. 
and we're focusing right now on black trans women because of the disproportionately high high uh, rates of violence that they experience uh, just mm-hmm. in their day-to-day life and in their community. Um, and so we, we, we're doing a lot of work with helping black trans women right now. And I'm so, I'm so excited and I love these women who are leading that effort. So mm-hmm. we're, yes, Wonderful. we are doing a, doing, yeah. Great. Well, let's, um, let's transition to uh, more of a celebratory <laughs> um, <laughs> part of the show and talk about your establishment of Oakland Pride and how did that come about? Because um, there's, you know, a big San Francisco Pride for many years. And so how did, how did you decide to and come about establishing Oakland Pride? Well, that, I was a part of what used to be called the, um, the L, I think it was the LGBT Roundtable. And Danny Wan, I don't know if you remember city council person Danny Wan. He was the, he was the first uh, out gay uh, city council member before Rebecca Kaplan. And uh, he um, we, he used to hold these roundtable meetings, and we, we I was also a part of East Bay Pride. So before Oakland Pride, there was East Bay Pride. And mm-hmm. when East Bay Pride went away, uh, Rebecca Kaplan came into office, and she said, and she's a city council person currently. Uh, I believe she identifies as lesbian. And she was um, – she 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 called a meeting and said, you know, we have to get East Bay Pride together. And who, you know, I can't do this. You guys have to do it. And who who wants to do it? And I was like, well, uh, I'll do it, but I I don't want to call it East Bay Pride. I'm very proud to be an Oaklander, and I I will start it and and incorporate it as Oakland Pride. And that was mm-hmm. how it started. And that was about. Mm-hmm. 12 years ago, I guess, yeah. mm-hmm. 12 or 13 cool. years ago. And so what was that like? What did you have to do to get something like that going? Was it a lot of work? It was a lot of work. Um, <laughs> we, um, the first, you know, I, I knew how to do incorporation. I, I had, I've worked as an executive director and a CEO before. I worked in the tech sector. I, so I, I had a lot of experience. However, um, we had a big challenge that year that we started Oakland Pride because Oscar Grant was uh, murdered in in mm-hmm. that that New Year's Eve at, uh, of that year, and also um, Occupy Oakland was happening, and mm. we had scheduled Pride for that September. And mm-hmm. you know the streets of Oakland were on fire for months. Right. And uh, right. someone, uh, I, I remember in an interview, they were they asked, "Why are you guys? I, I think you should just not do it." And we were going to cancel the first Oakland Pride until we got a call from someone who said that an artist was coming through who really wanted to do something in Oakland, and that artists happened to be Shaka Khan. And mm. when we we spoke with Shaka Khan, I was like, hey, 
we're doing this <laughs> because we're going to have Shaka Khan launch Oakland Pride. Nice. All this other stuff will go away. And literally it, it did. It was like it was a beautiful, well-attended event, the first Oakland Pride. And, um, and you know, just the people who were helping Amber Todd, she was my co-chair and co-founder, um, the, 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 the team that was over at, at that time, uh, which is no longer in existence, the bench and bar nightclub, everyone, we, we were able to get so many people in the community to help us make that happen. So, um, mm-hmm. but after that, the rest was history. So. Mm-hmm. And so how was this last Oakland Pride? I'm in Hawaii now. My roommate went to it, but I, I didn't hear. How, how was it with the pandemic oh, and everything? Oakland Pride has not happened this year yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought there was some yeah, kind of activities happened. over the weekend. That, that, was it more There were lots of because of San Francisco Pride. Yeah, very informal San Francisco Pride. And because it was Pride Month, there were little things that happened, but no no major Pride Festival. And uh, okay, since I'm not it. with Oakland, I'm, not, I'm no longer a part of Oakland Pride. Um, I, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing this year in September, which is the same week as our four-year anniversary. So I'm more focused on our anniversary. But whatever Oakland Pride, if they need us, we'll we'll we participate every year anyway. Got it. Cool. Um, so I want to bring up kind of a controversial matter. We talked about it a little bit um, before the show started. So I lived on Lake Merritt for 20 years, and when um, the 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 barbecue Becky thing happened right across the street from where I live, and uh, that was, for those that don't know, that was when um, this black couple was just barbecuing out in the park, and this white woman got into an argument with them about how you're not supposed to be barbecuing there in that location, and they got into an argument. And she called the police, and this is something that white people have been doing for a really long time, but this got caught on video, just like the police violence, things are getting caught on video more. And so this was one of the first videos that went viral where this woman, like, totally overreacted um, when the police arrived, um, having this big meltdown that she'd been you know, harmed in some way, and so it went it went viral, and this poor woman, her picture was just like the Bernie Sanders picture, like her picture was put in all these, like, iconic images, like the like Obama getting sworn in, she's in the audience calling the police, or like the Maasai warriors running through the, to Africa, and there she is calling the police. <laughs> this poor woman. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was like right across the street from my apartment, and so there was this barbecue rebellion, which I thought was awesome. So like every Sunday, maybe Saturday too, I can't remember, but every weekend, black folks came out and started having barbecue celebrations, and they were playing like old school soul, which I love. You know, it's like my age group kind of music. You know, and. Um, <laughs> And, you know, so many black people are coming from all over the Bay Area and, like, barbecuing and celebrating. And and then by dark, they would go away. And I just thought it was awesome, you know. I thought it was a really great rebellion, you know. And so then it just got 
you know, every summer there got to be more and more and more kind of vendors out there playing music. And then when the pandemic happened, there got to be wall-to-wall vendors and totally unregulated um, selling everything from, like, shots of booze to weed to a friend came over one day and said, hey, guess what? I bought mushrooms out in front of your house. <laughs> and so, like, people <laughs> people selling everything, totally unregulated, like, during the height of the pandemic, big crowds, no COVID regulations, no masks, young people at night partying till late at night with competing sound systems. And now they're playing, like, you know, hip-hop, loud, thumping music all through the night, and I had to move. So, um, at the, you know, on the one hand, I really support um, the the anger and the rage and wanting to take over, um, take back certain neighborhoods that felt like belonged to the black community and may have gone over from gentrification. Like, I get that. And then there's also the balance of, like, that's where I live and have a rent control apartment and need to be able to concentrate and sleep at night. So, anyway, I just want to get your thoughts about it. And, like, because I've seen you take videos of it, like, long videos of all the vendors wrapped around the lake. So I just wanted to kind of get your take on it and your understanding of it and just help me understand how to think about it. I mean, well, you I I feel you you will think about it however you experience it and uh I for me, I lived on the lake before too and I, I the the I just I I it's very difficult for me for me to sleep. Uh and I need my sleep, so I moved away from there because um I I just couldn't do it. But as it relates mm-hmm. to barbecue Becky, when I go back to leaving the military and coming to Oakland, Oakland was considered the black Mecca of Northern California. And mm-hmm. it was so much that, that I, we had, especially for black uh, queer people too, we had our own magazines here, which we have here in our library so that people can see what it was like during the eighties and nineties. Uh, we have we had our own black nightclubs here uh, that existed, and uh, it was you know it was a very good time, especially during a time when there was so much violence in Oakland and crack, but crack the crack epidemic and all of that was happening. But mm-hmm. it was our refuge from being discriminated against and the racism mm-hmm. that we felt when we would go to San Francisco. So mm-hmm. it was it was our home. And it mm-hmm. was our home when no one else wanted it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. now that right. people want it and they want to live in the lake, uh I can totally understand the the the, the children of the of the people like me and uh wanting to reclaim it uh at all costs. Uh, at, mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Uh, they know that their parents have been kicked out of Oakland and can't even afford to live here anymore. And it is, a, it's, 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 a, it's more of a retaliation. It's not a, a nicey-nice, you know, it's, it's, it's like they're saying, you know, for this one day or these two days you're going to have discomfort for we, we've had to deal with as being displaced and gentrified out of this place uh, Every day we have to deal with our new yeah, situation. Yeah. yeah. 
So, right. um, so I can, I, I can relate to that. And, but at the same time, I know there's no way I would be living on the lake because I need peace. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I totally understand, um, the, what they're doing and I, I support what they're doing because there is, when I, when you look at the streets of Oakland, uh, I was looking at a report not too long ago that said that 70% of the homeless population are black. Mm. And we only, in Oakland, there's only make up 22 or 23% of the population. Wow. So That's painful that, those sort of numbers put it in perspective to me. It's, it's, ah. the, the house is on fire. And so they're literally, this is one way to say, hey, the house is on fire every week. Uh, you guys need to do something about this, and we're not going to turn the music down. We're not going to. We're just. This is the way that we're going to protest, and you're going to be got di- it. uncomfortable. I got it. I got it. You know? I totally got it. I mean, I was just watching today the sunrise movement. Some young people at um, Washington yesterday uh, demanding that the climate change be significantly included in the next bill that Congress passes. And, you know, that gets all this news and stuff. And I see how this protest is not really getting that same kind of coverage um, because it's Mm -hmm. black folks, you know? So yeah, Yeah. it's it's a protest about like, Hey, we can't afford Oakland anymore. The systems are not supporting us with jobs. What was I just listening to today on something? Maybe it was democracy now or something. And, um, the guy was saying that, um, you know, we um, we were the first, you know, the first, I forget where he started with the history of black people, but he, he maybe it was Jamal Bowman, actually. I think it was Jamal Bowman, Jamal Bowman mm-hmm. speaking at the Sunrise Movement protest really powerfully. If anybody hasn't heard that speech, wow, um, talking about blacks were the first to be recruited in the military, and then when when you came back, there were no jobs for you, and then there was drugs for you. And, you know, he just listed, like, one thing after another, and it was really powerful yeah. talk. And it's, 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 always, it's always surprising to me um, that, I mean, that people don't see our fight. Like, it's, we think that it's right in their faces. But it's mm-hmm. really, uh, it, when it comes to white people, it's just not, they're, they're not experiencing it. So it's not on their radar. And yeah. it, it is, it, it's, it's almost unbelievable that they could not see this. Yeah. But if you don't right. care, even if you do care, it's, you still, you just don't see it. Either people don't mm-hmm. see it because they don't. You know, when I talk about how, the HIV and AIDS is impacting uh, gay men of color. People are always shocked. They, we we see it, but it's just not on their radar. They don't. They know white gay men are not having those same levels of uh, the same impact as they did in the 80s or 90s. That's because they got the help first. Mm-hmm. They got the help first. <laughs> we didn't. And we're right. dealing with the impact of neglect 
of our communities around these issues of being having access to prevention medicines, to education around HIV, to uh, you know treatment. That that has always just been the case, and it, in every area, it, it's just across the board. Black people uh, are being treated still as descendants of slaves. It's, 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 it's almost as if it's just always there. Yeah, less than human. Yeah. And and so how about COVID? Like, I know that the black, brown, and indigenous communities have been hit really hard, but has it also disproportionately affected the LGBTQ community? I think that there's, I know I I was a part of a letter writing campaign about the the fact that it had the potential to, and this was back in March of last year, but I'm really not sure what the impact is. I would say that COVID-19 has impacted us more LGBTQ people in particular because we have higher rates of substance use, higher rates of um, uh, drug, you know, just addiction. Uh, and right. I, I have seen just in our own uh, community, we lost people. I was holding, going to memorial services, virtual memorial services, and it reminded me of my days working in the AIDS and HIV uh, pandemic, I mean, arena back back when it was an, an epidemic. And so, um, so definitely I'm seeing a lot of young LGBTQ people who have died during the pandemic, and most mm-hmm. of it had to do with, 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 with just their isolation and loneliness, and yeah, yeah, and dealing with those issues. So, right, yeah, because when the economy is failing, that's who's going to be the the last to get the remaining jobs that are left exactly. in the economic opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much for what you're offering. I, I just want, you know, I'm bowing, <laughs> metaphorically bowing to you for uh, what, you know, the, the community and the support and the way you've been able to raise money and, you know, give people jobs. And just thank you, thank you for that. Um, I want to give you some time to tell our listeners how they can support you if anybody would like to. Yes. I want to thank you, Sumati, because... You know, you just I I've always seen you on Facebook. <laughs> so and I've seen all the, the the things that you've been doing too. So I wanna thank you for having me. Um people can just visit our website at Oakland LGBTQ Center dot org. If you just Google Oakland LGBTQ Center, it'll we should pop right up. And if you feel like learning more about us, if you wanna reach out to me, you can do that. Uh, my phone number, uh, our phone number here is 510-882-2286 or OaklandLGBTQCenter.org. Um, and you can donate to the center. Uh, you can just go to our page and donate uh, to our center. But um, but learn about us. And if you're in the Bay Area, you can we, you can reach out to us so that you can come see it for yourself and uh, meet our team and see what we're doing. 
you know, we're, mm-hmm. yeah, we're here. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Joe. I really appreciate having you and getting to know you better. Your story is just amazing. And I'm going to go look up that Oprah video when we hang up. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> All right. You take care. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So next week on Leading Edge, Leading Edge Love Radio, we are going to have a wonderful guest who has written a book for, um, for therapists, and she actually coaches therapists on how they can um, support uh, non-monogamous folks because a lot of therapists don't really know what to do when they get confronted with that. So she trains other therapists on how to work with non-monogamous clients. So um, join us next week on Leading Edge Love Radio at 6 p.m. Pacific time for more juicy information. And you can find all of our past episodes on Blog Talk Radio under Leading Edge Love or on my website at sumatisparks.com, also in iTunes. Um, We've done some really incredible episodes in the past. Uh, I've interviewed so many wonderful people, powerful people from all walks of life. So please check them out because they're all there for free uh, for you to take uh, advantage of them. All right, everybody, have a great evening. Good night.